Would you join with me in one of the most neglected chapters in all the Bible, in preaching at least, and that is Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Arno Penzias happens to be a Nobel laureate in physics. And after researching the evidence, he said, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Now this may come as a surprise to some that a Nobel laureate in physics made such a statement. It surfaces an issue of the so-called war between the Bible and science, which I think is essentially manufactured in many ways. I want to show to you a model for how I personally handle the issue of the Bible and science or Christianity and science. And if we could see that for just a moment, I think that will help us greatly. I think, in fact, it's on your skeletal outline this, uh, this morning. But if the large box there represents all the knowledge in the world, the black covered box there represents what we know. And the white area of the balance of the box, the box, frankly, that you can't see on the screens, uh, happens to be knowledge that we do not know. Anytime I come to the notion or a possible contradiction between the Bible and science, I want to be a bit modest and careful in how I handle that. I do not want to automatically assume, of course, that the Bible is wrong. I don't want to necessarily quickly assume that science is wrong. I assume it happens to be outside my realm of knowledge in the white area. And so further research may bring some resolution to that. That's happened often, not just with the life sciences, but with archaeology. It's happened with some other areas, uh, history as well. And so I do think that it's entirely appropriate to look to the Word of God when we want to understand the origins of the earth and how God created the world. The Bible is the best source. However, that is not to say that it's inappropriate for Christians to study science. I hope that you will read everything you can get your hands on. But we must make a clear distinction between science and philosophy. We must make a clear distinction between the scientific method and naturalism. Naturalism, in my judgment, happens to be the largest difficulty we are facing in our day in the relationship of the Bible and science. Now let me make mention of not just naturalism, but let me say also, there is a challenge here when it comes to the use of the word proof and prove. Uh, the truth is, is that the words proof and prove can be a bit fluid. Uh, they can change meaning to an extent depending on what branch of science you're talking about. There is logical proof and there are methods of arriving at logical proof. There is mathematical proof and there are methods, different methods from uh, logic and philosophy in arriving at a mathematic proof. There happens to be historical proof and legal proof and scientific proof. And the word proof and prove are, are much like the word can. Maybe not quite as fluid, but you can use the word can in English in three different ways, though it's spelled the same and sounds the same every time you use it. For example, I could say, I can, can, a can of peaches. And each time the word can means something different. The first time it means the ability. 
I'm able to can a can of peaches. The second means a container, or, or a process, excuse me, of preserving a fruit. I can preserve a can, a container, of peaches. Or to put it simply, I can can a can of peaches. Three different uses of the same word, all with different meaning. Now, the word prove and proof are not, are not that elastic or not that fluid, if I can put it that way, but that is a good analogy for what I'm talking about here. Uh, the same is true with the word score. The word score has a similar referent whether you're talking about soccer or basketball or football. In soccer, you score by kicking a ball into a net. In basketball, you score different. You put a ball through a hoop. And then in football, you cross into an end zone or put it through the uprights and a goal. Some of your teams yesterday wish they had learned that. But the truth is, is that you use the same word, score, for something that has different methods. And the same is true when it comes to proof in mathematics, when it comes to proof in logic, in science, in law, and in forensics. And so we need to be careful about what we're talking about here. And when it comes to the understanding of creation and how God created the heavens and the earth, really all of these are available to us. There are some that engage in logic and some that engage in mathematics and obviously some that engage in science and the various sciences and their subdisciplines. And there are some that engage in uh, the other branches of inquiry as well. I think more historians and more forensic scientists need to look into the origins of the earth. I think that might, may be just as appropriate, if not more appropriate, than the other branches of science. Now, naturalism is an enormous challenge in our day. Naturalism is a philosophy that assumes that nature is the whole show. There is nothing besides nature. There is no divine intervention. Everything that came to be is the result of chance, of random selection. There's no intelligence behind it. Naturalists explain the world in terms of nature and exclude, before research, the possibility of God. In other words, they rig the game before the research. God cannot be... God cannot be, under any circumstance, an explanation for what they find in the laboratory or in the fossil or any other realm of science. He is immediately excluded. The game is rigged before it ever starts. That is the dominant view in scientific research today. Now, it happens to be the philosophical conviction of, some, of many scientists. It is not for all. It would be wrong to say that all scientists are atheists and that none of them believe that God created the heavens and the earth. But functionally, all researchers have got to begin at this point with naturalism if they want funding and if they want tenure, or else both are threatened. There's an enormous financial incentive for maintaining naturalism. The game is rigged. Now let me ask you something. Let's say this afternoon you learn that your neighbor has been burglarized while at church. And detectives show up, but the head of detectives shows up right after they do. And in your hearing, he has a conversation with them. And he says to these detectives, you can, uh, you can do all of the investigation that you want, but you may not consider the neighbor as a suspect. Before you begin your investigation, you must rule the neighbor out. Would anybody here get a little suspicious? That is precisely what has happened with naturalism. Naturalism has ruled God out. The game is rigged in many ways, and taxpayer dollars are funding it.
I don't know about you, but I have some concerns about that. Because of what I read in Genesis chapter 1, here we find the only eyewitness account of creation. No one else was there. And what we find in Genesis chapter 1 is God's own witness to creation. There are some repeated words and phrases here that I want you to take note of. God is mentioned 39 times either by the name God or pronoun in 31 verses. Earth, 20 times. Heaven or heaven, 7 times. Said, and God said, 10 times. Let, let there be light, for example, 15 times. There was and it was so, 7 times. God saw, 7 times. Good, 7 times. He called the day or he called the night. He called the uh, light that rules the day the sun. He called the one that rules the evening the moon. And then evening and morning, six times. The word day, the Hebrew word yom, 11 times. Made or created, 11 times. After their kind or their image or likeness, 14 times. Genesis chapter 1 is contrary to naturalism. The unproven scientific assumption. And here in Genesis 1, contrary to naturalism, Moses records that God designed the heaven and the earth. It is not the result of random chance. Beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let the firmament in the midst of the waters, let it uh, divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And so the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. 
So God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind. Everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, And to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Genesis chapter 1 justifies our dismissal of naturalism. God designed the heavens and the earth, and God's design of the heavens and the earth make naturalism indefensible. Now why was it that God was able to design the heavens and the earth? There are several reasons that appear from the text. And the first is this. First is God's sovereignty. God was able to design the heavens and the earth because God is sovereign. Let me ask you, have you ever been frustrated with anyone because they wouldn't do what you told them to do? And were any of those people under the age of 18, I mean those least likely, and uh, least capable of resisting your counsel are oftentimes the first ones to do it. Have you ever been frustrated that they would not do what you needed them to do or directed them to do? In this text, God is sovereign and what he says to do gets done in the text. Sovereignty means that God acts like a king. God has absolutely no restriction and no limitation except what he might impose upon himself. He is free to do whatever he pleases. He has no constraints on himself at all. And quite frankly, even in our day, God is sovereign as well. He is sovereign over salvation. And no one is ever saved without coming to God on his own terms. And that is repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. And God is just as sovereign when it comes to the creation of the heaven and earth. Now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 is one of the most remarkable and encouraging passages that I read with regularity and upon which I have feasted probably for a quarter century now. And that is, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Repeated over and over again throughout the text, God would say something, and then it would happen, and Moses would conclude, and it was so. Now, watch this. God looked at nothing 
and told nothing that did not yet exist to do something, and it did it. In every case, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that God framed the worlds out of nothing merely with His own Word. And so He has no constraints. He is so sovereign that something that does not exist obeys Him anyway, is what take, took place in Genesis chapter 1. Bill Dembski in his book about intelligent design says that in many labs and among many scientists is, are a number of file drawers. Today they would be digital where you uh, collect research. And he says that there is such thing as a file drawer effect among many scientists, those who do research. The file drawer effect, according to Dembski, who himself is quite skilled in this, is that you can perform a large number of experiments and if they don't work you put them in a file drawer and never expose them to the public. But the one time out of a thousand that one does work, you end up exposing it to the public. Now that has become problematic in pharmaceuticals, in medications, in research and study on medicine. Some are insisting that experiments that don't work need to be posted for the public to see. He says, and goes further, evolutionary biology has a file drawer of failed experiments that is immense, especially in the area of paleontology. In other words, reconstructing the fossil record. And the one time out of a thousand that it works, they expose it, but withhold the information when it comes to the other failed reconstructions of the, of the uh, fossil record. Friend, do you understand, while humans and the best minds in our world may have a file drawer that is immense of failed experiments, God has no such file drawer. When He says, let there be light, there is light. When He says, let the cattle and the creeping things come upon the earth, they come. You may not appreciate the creeping things, but they fall somewhere in the food chain. We do appreciate cattle. God does not have a file drawer of failed experiments because God is sovereign. But that's not all. Not only is sovereignty, but is goodness. In chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 1, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31, God looked at what He had made, and it was good. And when He created humankind, He looked upon what He made, and it was very good. Contrary to Darwin, we must declare the universe is good. It is not chaotic. It is not full of natural, unguided, blind anarchy. The world is good. In fact, it is precisely fit for human existence. It is fine-tuned for your life and for mine in the world. Now, Anthony Flew was uh, one of the most prolific and influential atheists in Britain following World War II. In 2004, he abandoned his atheism, and he declared that he now believed in a supreme being who designed the earth. And it was some of these arguments that actually brought him to that conclusion. He has written that account in his book, There Is a God. He opens this chapter on this particular subject by saying, imagine you go into a hotel room, you arrive, and your favorite musical artist is playing over the radio or their CD and you open up the refrigerator and there are your favorite beverages you turn on the television and your favorite show is tuned there 
You go into the bathroom and you find that your favorite grooming products, for those of you who don't know what grooming products are, it's how you clean up. But you go into the bathroom and there your favorite grooming products are there. On the wall happen to be uh, works of art of your favorite subjects and perhaps by your favorite artist. In other words, you arrive in this hotel room and it looks like someone expected you to arrive. Anthony Flew said about our earth, that after researching the design of the earth, he's inclined to believe that someone knew that we were coming. And the design that I just explained to you about the hotel room is far more simple than the, the, the design even of one human body. It is nearly incalculable to explain how well the world is designed and prepared for human existence. One author says it would be impossible to calculate because the zeros that would follow the one in ten are so numerous they outnumber all the particles of the universe, he says. That might be something of an exaggeration, but that's what he states. And Anthony Flew, in fact, came to believe in a supreme power because of the design of the world. Now, I want to mention three things about that. These are called cosmic constants. One happens to be the Earth's orbit. There's a narrow band around the sun the Earth can use for an orbit. In fact, if it's 1% closer, Bill Dembski says, it gets too close and all the waters of the earth evaporate. If it's 2% further away, then all the waters of the earth freeze. In either case, our life and our ability to access water, ladies and gentlemen, hinges on 3% rotation around the sun and our closeness and proximity to the sun. But that's not all. Not only the orbit around the sun, but also the sun's size. If the sun were smaller, it would pull us in, and our rotation is dependent upon the size of the sun. And instead of rotating once every 24 hours, we would rotate only once every year and a half. That means for more than half a year, one side of the earth would be exposed to the sun. And what do you think would happen then? The other side would be hidden from the sun and be completely dark, for more than half a year. What kind of circumstance would that prove, uh, provide? Bildensky says that what would happen is that our, our living conditions on Earth would be much like the planet Mercury. We would not be able to inherit or inhabit the Earth. Ultraviolet light would be too much, and the freeze and the cold on the other side would be too much. In other words, somebody has said, our sun is a Goldilocks star. Not too big, not too small, not too hot, not too cold, but just right. I think they're right. Then the planets, Jupiter and Mars, are of great service to the Earth. Jupiter, one author said, is a cosmic vacuum cleaner. In other words, the debris that flies through space and comets are absorbed by Jupiter before they reach the Earth. Mars intercepts asteroids. If we did not have these two planets, some say that we would be liable to 10,000 times more space debris, comets, and asteroids than what we currently experience, could possibly making life on Earth uninhabitable. The universe is precisely fit for our existence because God designed 
the universe. Naturalism is not an adequate explanation for the fine-tuning of the earth. And I would say to you, it is not appropriate. It is not an appropriate assumption for public education either. Whether in preschool or up to the university, especially if they're supported by tax dollars. Any education system that neglects God is a disservice to students from the youngest to the oldest. Can you imagine a math teacher neglecting the mathematical, uh, the multiplication table? Can you imagine an English professor neglecting the alphabet? Can you imagine a chemistry professor neglecting the periodic table? Can you imagine a football coach ignoring a football? Now that happens at the University of Texas quite often, but you don't keep your job if you do that kind of thing. Good education has many requirements, one of which is that you tell students the truth. You tell them in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Secular education is mythical and misleading. Education should exist to magnify Almighty God. God's goodness. And by the way, if you teach children that they're mere descendants of animals and they have no meaning to God, do not be surprised when they hunt and mate with each other as animals. But there's a third thing. Not only God's sovereignty and goodness, but God's priorities. God magnifies in this text the creation of humankind. And it is clear that the creation of man and woman is a priority to Him. In verse 26, we find priority attention. He says here, let us make man in our image. Now there's some interpreters that would like to weasel out of the Trinity by saying God is speaking to angels, not the other members of the Trinity. The problem is no Jew would ever consider that an angel creates anything. This is a mysterious allusion to the Trinity. Let us make man in our own image. So every one of the members of the Trinity cooperated together in creating man and woman. There's priority attention. Then in verse 26, there's priority design. Let us make man according to our likeness. Now, everything else has been created according to its kind. Cattle produce cattle. Creeping things produce creeping things. Uh, fruit trees produce after their own kind, fruit and their seed. Here, God creates something according to His own kind after his own kind. And so there's priority, there's priority uh, here in the text. And, and then uh, he continues in verse 27, emphatically in verse 27, a priority image, a priority design. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Well, that's the third time. Male and female, he created them. So there's priority design. And then verse 28 there's a priority mandate. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. And so humankind does not own the earth, God does, but humankind manages the earth to the pleasure of its owner and its creator. So there's a priority mandate. And then there's a priority evaluation in verse 31. God saw everything he had made and indeed it was very good. The previous verses in uh, verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25 said that God saw what He made and it was merely good. But after creating humankind, God said it is very good. 
emphatically humans are the priority of God in creation. God has designed humans as the crown of creation. He created the heavens and the earth to sustain and serve the interests of those who carry His royal image. Creation must be used in a manner consistent with these divine priorities. Political ambition is not the most important thing, but survival and service to the king is. Diversity is not, the most, is not more important than survival and service. Government policy is not more important than survival and service. Sexual behavior and choices and identity is not the most important thing on the earth. It is not more important than survival and service. So friends, if our federal government will protect unborn eagles in their eggs, they need to protect babies in the womb. If fish, game, and wildlife commissions in the states will guard a duckling's relationship with its mother, then the state must do all that it can to protect families and marriages and not undermine them. And if Christians and others have compassion for lost dogs and kittens, we should certainly have compassion and more for those that are lost without Jesus Christ. Humans are the priority of creation. So God was able to design the heavens and the earth because of His sovereignty, His goodness, and His sense of priority. Naturalism must be discounted as quickly as possible. I understand the difficulties that come with changing a scientific paradigm. I think that we are on the way. I understand, I understand, I understand. But the problems we're trying to prevent by excluding God out of the scientific venture are still happening and it's getting worse. We need God back in research again. Robert Jastrow, the NASA scientist, wrote in the 60s, For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, all this research, this story, ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. God has the answer. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The well-told, uh, the well-known joke, is that some scientists approach God one day and say, God, we can do whatever you can do. He said, well, what do you mean? Well, we can create a man and a woman. He said, well, help yourself. He said, well, first we get some dirt. God says, hold on. You've got to go get your own dirt. <laughs> we are dependent upon Almighty God. We're dependent upon Him for life. We are dependent upon Him for everything meaningful in this life and in the next. He is necessary because we are helpless and we are no more helpless than when we are without Jesus Christ in life who connects us with our Creator. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are His workmanship. We're not our own workmanship. We cannot save ourselves by our works. We're only saved by grace through faith. If we're going to be saved, God's going to have to do it. Because we do not have enough to appeal to God. We have enough for condemnation. We do not have enough for salvation. And thank God 
The God of our creation created us for His own workmanship. So when you come to Jesus Christ, God begins to work a marvelous work of grace in your life. Because Jesus bled and was risen from the dead, salvation has been purchased. The pantry is full. The divine storehouse is full. And God invites you to repudiate whatever keeps you from Him and trust Him enough to ask Him to save you. Can you do that today? God wants you to. And I want you to stand with me quickly as we pray to Him about it. Heavenly Father, today as your people, we're not ashamed to call you Creator. But thank you that we may call you more. Savior, Defender, Redeemer, and Friend. And I want to pray, God, that you will act on your good name. You're known as faithful. You answer prayer. And I want to pray today that friends today would hurry and turn to Christ today. Help them to come. Help folks come and become part of Beach Haven that already know you. Help others to follow you in baptism. And we pray that will take place in these moments as we turn to you and respond to the revelation of your word. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And it's during this time that so many of us have come and met a staff member and have shared our spiritual need. We want to help you with that. There's no magic to walk in the aisle. But now while your heart is tender, now while God, while God, ha, while God has your attention, while you're assured that you're still breathing, would you come? A staff member will meet you and we'll be very happy to help you with your need. Tim, lead us, would you? And let's sing together as you come. Please come.